0: So we are in the book of Revelations for our series, More Than Conquerors. So just as a quick recap on the book of Revelation so far, if, you have, if you're joining us for the first time this Sunday, the book of Revelation begins with the author John being exiled to the island of Patmos. At Patmos, on a Sunday, John starts to worship Jesus, he's going to church by himself on the island. And then Jesus decides to rock up as a first-time guest to that church service on that Sunday. And Jesus says, hey, John, turn around. And John sees Jesus as the king in all glory. And he tells John, hey, John, write this down. I have some messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And so John writes down these letters from Jesus to encourage these churches to not fall into seduction or persecution. And so Jesus encourages and motivates the churches to repent and obey by visions of his character and promises of the future victory in him. These letters were like vision boards, images of Jesus' character, pictures of victory in Christ to motivate the churches to remain faithful to him. And so it's the vision of Christ and the victory in him that pulls the churches forward to obedience and faithfulness as they strive to reach that goal, that victory that awaits them. And in case those visions and promises in the letters to the churches wasn't enough to move the churches in the right direction, well, in chapters 4 to 5, Jesus gives another awe-inspiring vision of himself and what is to come, to really capture the imaginations of his people in order for the church to be formed, shaped, to be boldly faithful in the present, even when everything seems to be going against them. Now, when you hear vision, you're probably thinking ideas of hallucination or trances, so you probably think of John's vision in that way, he's kind of having... A trance, a hallucination, he's having a bit of a trippy experience with all these creatures around the throne. But I think a more helpful analogy is if you are a movie person, I think a helpful analogy is Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. If you've seen The Lord of the Rings, you'll remember Frodo carrying a ring. And he's carrying out this ring, and this ring has power to it. And there are scenes where he puts on the ring and he sort of gets ushered into a different reality. He sees things that are going on that you wouldn't normally see. He takes the ring off, and he's kind of back into the normal world. I think this is the kind of thing that John is experiencing here. He's not having a hallucination. He's not having a trip. He's not imagining things in a fanciful way. What is happening is ushered into a deeper reality and he sees the deeper realities that you wouldn't normally see. So to help you make sense of this vision, this perception of a deeper reality, I want to talk you through three things from these chapters. I want you to see the clue to the vision, the focus of the vision, and the meaning of the vision. So first of all, the clue to the vision. We read from Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. If you've got the Bible and Bible apps open, uh, you can refer to it. In verse 1, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. The clue to the vision is found in the words, Come up here. In the Bible, spatial language often stands for a frame of reference. And so what Jesus is inviting John to see is a different perspective of reality, a different frame of reference, to see God's perspective of the world and history from where God is. But with Jesus, now we can see history from the perspective of heaven And Jesus is going to let John see the true reality of how things are going to play out. And so that is the clue to the vision. Come up here. Verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Next, we see the focus of the vision. The focus of chapters 4 and 5 is the throne of God. The throne is mentioned over and over again. And everything else that John sees is defined by its relationship to the throne. And so we've got a lovely illustration by Anna, just to have a a visual representation of that. Everything is defined in relationship to the focus of the throne at the centre. And surrounding the thrones, we read there were 24 elders, and that symbolizes the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles in the New Testament, and together they symbolize all of God's people. In front of the throne there, we read there are seven spirits, and that symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Also in front of the throne, in verse 6, it says, what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. The sea in the Bible symbolically is depicted normally as stormy, dangerous, chaotic. The sea in the Bible symbolizes the world in chaos after the fall. But here, what's interesting, the sea is calm. It's so still that you can see through the sea like if if it was glass. It shows that God's rule brings order and peace to the world when he sits on his throne. John also sees that there are four living creatures, a lion, an ox, a man, and a flying eagle. That can be a bit interesting and perhaps a bit confusing, but you can kind of identify it in the sense that empires throughout all history have used powerful beasts to represent their power. So, for example... If anyone's gone to the UK and you take a British coin and you turn it heads up, what do we see? Normally see on a British coin a lion. If you're a rugby person, the lion is kind of the, the mascot of the rugby team. Well, if you look at the US presidential seal, uh, you might see that more often in the news at the moment or in uh, Marvel Movies, what do we see in the U.S. presidential seal? You see an eagle. So things like the British lion or the American eagle or the Chinese dragon, they still proclaim imperial or national power, doesn't it? And so Jesus invites John to see that these symbols are now subverted in a subverted way because John sees that these beasts worship the one that is on the throne, The vision doesn't proclaim the power of earthly kingdoms. The vision proclaims the power of heaven's king. All nations, all kingdoms, all imperial power, at the end of the day, will bow down to worship God on the throne and all kingdoms, all powers will say, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And so there are lots of things surrounding the throne. There is God's people. There is the Holy Spirit. There is earthly powers and kingdoms. But what is in the focus, what is at the centre, is God on the throne. The throne of God is a symbol of his reign, his authority, his control. He's the one that is in charge of all time and all history. He's the one who is sovereign over all reality. God is on the throne. And that is both a comfort and a challenge. The comfort is God is on the throne. Whatever is going in your, on in your life, whatever seems hard to deal with right now, whatever turmoil that you are experiencing, Whatever anxiety and doubt that you are feeling, whatever fear or frustration that is overwhelming you, know that God is on the throne. You have to be anchored by that vision that all that you are facing and all that you are feeling is not all of your reality. God has not lost control of the universe. Your life is not a reckless car spinning out of control. God is with you. God is the king in the chaos. God is on the throne. And that is a great comfort to us all. But the challenge is also that God is on the throne. It means that you are not the center of your life, God is. You are not in control of your life. God is. And he has the right to order your circumstances as he sees fit. And so we have two choices. Either you try to control the chaos in your life or you can trust the king who is in the chaos with you. Well, the types of TV and movie genre that I really like are spy thrillers. I absolutely love the Bond series. I love espionage action TV series. I love political dramas. And a common Hollywood scene in those genres is the Situation Room in the White House. Have you seen the Situation Room in the White House? The Situation Room in the White House is where There is an anxious beehive of activity where the American government attempts to control the chaos of the world. And yet, in these chapters, the heaven throne room is nothing like it, isn't it? The situation room is buzzing with activity, people trying to know everything, people trying to spy and get information and data in order to keep things under control. In the throne room of God, what do we see instead? There's peace. Instead of busyness, there is worship, praise, and joy. I just want to bring that to your imagination and just see what a contrast that is. When we feel like our life and world is chaotic, what you and I tend to do is it attempt to take control. When things are absolutely chaotic in the new household, the first thing that I do, that I tend to do is say, hey, 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 settle down. Tristan, sit down over there. Sorry, I'm going to strap you in over here. Mom, take a walk. Let's just settle down. Let's put everything in its place, in order. I just try to control the situation. Because even though I know that the world is in chaos, I have a little bit of peace when I know that there's a little bit of place where I am in charge. But here's the thing. We are not to do that in God's world. We are not ultimately in control of our life. God is. Because God is on the throne, not us. So, when we face challenges, when we face difficulties, when we face a global pandemic, we can make two choices on how to deal with the situation. We can choose to enter into our own situation rooms and be busy and be a beehive of anxious activity, or we can choose to enter the throne room of God and be filled with worship of God. We can attempt to control the chaos or we can trust the king in the chaos. The focus is that God is on the throne and it both comforts us and challenges us. Now let's see the meaning of this vision. What is the meaning of seeing God on the throne? And the meaning of the vision can be summed up in this way. God is the only one who deserves to be worshipped. These two chapters, if we if you read through it again, it's a con- crescendo of continuous worship. You notice in these chapters, it starts with the four living creatures worshiping God. Then it's the four living creatures and the elders worshiping God. Then it's the four living creatures, the elders, and the angels worshiping God. Then it's the four living creatures, the elders, the angels, and every living creature under the earth all worshiping God. There is this crescendo of Continuous worship. What this is trying to proclaim to us is that God is the only one that deserves to be worshipped. And the word worship is from the old English word worth. Worship. In other words, we worship whenever we ascribe worth and value to something or someone. Worship is simply valuing something, prizing something, holding something meaningful and important. So make no mistake, all of us worship. All of us all worship. And if you're joining us today and you identify yourself as more as an atheist, I would like to show that you are still a worshiper. The question is. What do you worship? What do you attribute value, worth, and significance to? And the next question is, with what you attribute worth and value to, is that thing deserving of your worship? What Revelation 4 and 5 wants you and I to see is that there is nothing that deserves your worship but God. That doesn't mean you won't find yourself worshipping these things, ascribing value and significance to those things, causing them to hold weight in your life. But they don't deserve your worship. God is the only being in the universe that deserves your worship. And there are two major reasons why God is the only one that deserves your worship. And we find them in two hymns. Two songs of worship that are sung by those around the throne. God deserves to be worshipped because, first of all, he is our creator. He is our creator. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, in the first song, it's a song, the first song, verse 11, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things. By your will they were created and have their being. That is the first reason why God is worthy of your worship, because he alone is our creator. Everything besides God is created. The logic and rationale is very clear. God the creator is intrinsically more worthy, more significant, more greater than anything that is created. That makes sense. God is deserving your worship because he is the only one that creates from nothing, who spoke the world into existence by his mere words. And so the first act of worship of God in your life is to simply come to the conviction that you are created and there is a creator. That is the beginning of worship. Secondly, God is deserving your worship because he is your redeemer. In Revelation chapter five, we meet Jesus. In Revelation five, there is a scroll and it's sealed up, and no one is worthy to open it. No one is worthy to let us into God's plan for the world. That's what the scroll represents—God's plan for the world. But then we meet the one who is like a lamb, who was slain, who is called the Lion and from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. All of which are Old Testament references to the Messiah to the Redeemer, to Jesus. And Jesus comes, and he is worthy to open the scroll and look at the worship that is sung to Jesus in the second song. The second song is found in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. God deserves your worship, not because He's your creator, but also because He is your redeemer. We are enslaved to sin, but Jesus, by His blood, by His death and sacrifice on the cross, He purchased us. He paid the ransom to free us from the slavery to sin. And so Jesus is worthy of our worship because only He alone can save us from our sin. Do you see that the logic and the rationale is is clear? There's nothing fanciful about faith in Jesus. It's actually very logical. God is the only one of our worship because he alone is creator of all things and he alone is redeemer of all peoples from all nations to make us a kingdom of priests. Is there anyone that is like Jesus? No. No. Can anything in this world be like God and take his place and do what he has done? No. There is nothing, there is no one on earth and under the earth who is worthy. So the clue of the vision is to come up and see God's perspective or reality. And the focus of the vision is God is on the throne. And the meeting is this. Only God is worthy and deserving of our worship. He's deserving because he is creator and he is redeemer. So how does this vision form and shape our lives now? Well, One of the biographers who described Jonathan Edwards' preaching was this. He described it as logic on fire. There is logic, there is truth that is proclaimed, but it's also on fire, There is passion, there is emotion, and it's felt. And I think that is exactly what worship is supposed to be, logic on fire. We worship in response to truth, but it's also to be on fire. There is joy, there is passion, there is emotion, there is feeling that is to be present. And so the point of these two chapters is to not merely Convince you intellectually that God is the only one that is deserving of your worship. The point of this, these chapters is to stir your passion to worship God. And here is the problem that we have a lot of us have a disconnect between our facts and our feelings. One of the problems is that our feelings are actually not driven out or guided by fact and truth. Our feelings are prone to be driven and guided by lies or half-truths. Or the other problem is that the facts and the truth that we hold about God doesn't overflow into our feelings. So what can change that? How can true facts overflow into true feelings in our worship of God? And the answer is right here in Revelation 5. What can change us is the experience of being purchased by Jesus the experience of being ransomed and redeemed by Jesus. If you experience being ransomed and redeemed by Jesus, you will overflow into worship. If you don't, it's because you have not experienced the freedom of being redeemed by Jesus. You never experienced Jesus setting you free from sin. Or it's because you've forgotten the freedom of being redeemed by Jesus. Jesus. And we know that this can happen because the story of the Old Testament is a story that, about God who redeems his people from slavery, from Egypt, and the rest of the Old Testament shows that God's people continually forget their redemption. And so the Old Testament can be summed up as God sending prophets, sending poets to write messages, to write songs, to encourage God's people to remember their redemption by their Redeemer. And we need the same thing. The way to stoke your affection of God is to continually remember what Jesus has set you free from. And so the way to connect your facts with your feelings is to ask yourself, what have you been set free from? Or what do you need to be set free from? When you remember Jesus and the things that he has done to save you and free you, I believe true affections will overflow. True affections will overflow. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you do sit on the throne. Father, thank you for giving us a vision of your throne room in comparison to our situation room. Father, help us to choose to come into your throne room as the world around us may not make sense, as the world around us may feel chaotic, to experience your peace, to experience your love, and to experience an overflow of worship. Free us from our own situation rooms where we try to anxiously control the things of our lives. But Father, help us to just trust in the King who is in us and with us in the chaos, Lord. Help us to remember what we have been set free from. Help us to remember our Redeemer, our Christ our Messiah, who by his blood purchased us from the slavery to sin. Father, we ask by your word and spirit that you would connect the facts with our feelings, with the knowledge of your grace, with the power of your redemption. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.